Amen. Good, good morning again, Hill family. It's good to see everyone this morning. My name is Jimmy. I am one of the pastors here at the Hill. It is a great privilege to lead you preaching of God's Word this morning. If you're a guest, I want to say, hey, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here this morning. I would encourage you to come back. We have an interesting, lovely group of people here at the Hill. It takes a few times to get to know us. Come back and visit us a few weeks. What is Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? Differing people often provide differing answers to that question. Some, we hear, speak of Christianity as a religion intertwined with a political system. Many parts of the world, you might hear that Christianity is America's religion. Others may describe Christianity by certain well-known preachers, some good, some who often we see pleading for people's money. Within popular culture today, misconceptions regarding Christianity abound. But sadly, many within the church seem to be just as confused. When you ask people who claim to be Christians the same question, you often get a multitude of answers as well, mostly revolving around either things we're supposed to do or things we're not supposed to do. Being a Christian means you don't fill in the blank. Being a Christian means you do fill in the blank. Maybe go to church, get baptized, do good things in the community, live charitably. Of course, now there are things you do, there are things you don't do when you become a Christian. But is that what defines Christianity? Is being a Christian merely a matter of what we do or what we don't do? I'll toss it in your lap this morning rhetorically. If someone asks you on an elevator tomorrow, what is a Christian? What is Christianity? You had two minutes to respond. How would you answer that very question? What does it mean to be a Christian? How would you respond? This Easter morning, we're going to consider how the Apostle Paul answers that question from the third chapter of the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. When the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians, a similar confusion concerning the Christian faith was creeping or attempting to be brought into the church. There was a group of people threatening the gospel message by causing confusion on what, in fact, it meant to be a Christian. So Paul, he spells out very succinctly in the third chapter of Philippians, the essence of true Christianity. And its conclusion is that Christianity is about knowing Jesus Christ, through whom we gain righteousness, power, and glory. Christianity is about knowing Jesus Christ, through whom or whereby we gain a righteousness, we gain power, and we gain a future glory, as we're going to see. Put your eyes on verse 7 of chapter 3. I'm going to read down to verse 11 to see our text this morning. 
Apostle Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, as we pause after the reading of Your Word, we we want to understand Your Word that we might apply Your Word to our lives. So Holy Spirit, I pray You would be with us now. Honor Your Son, Father. Holy Spirit, honor Your Word as we exalt the Lord Jesus on this most important Sunday. In His name we pray. Amen. I, I aim to be simple this morning. And my focus this Easter morning is going to be on Paul's statement in verse 8. Look at it again. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. It's that phrase, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, is what Paul uses to define the Christian faith. And what I want us to unpack this morning. But to do that, we have to trace or go back a little bit and trace Paul's argument, which began in verse 2, with a group of people who are dangerously distorting the gospel of grace. So put your eyes back on verse 2. Paul identifies these group of people very harshly by referring to them as dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Paul's referencing a group of uh, uh, known as the Judaizers who taught that to become a follower of Jesus, a, 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 to become a Christian, a, a Gentile, a non-Jew had to become a Jew first through circumcision and taking on the Jewish law. Acts chapter 15, we learn how they, they taught explicitly, it says, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, as a derogatory comment, Jews sometimes, maybe even say often, would refer to Gentiles as dogs, since they were viewed as being unclean outside of the covenant. So Paul here is really flipping the script, you might say. He is calling these Judaizers dogs. And not just dogs, he's referring to them as evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh, referring to their teaching, no doubt, on circumcision. And Paul's harsh language here speaks to the seriousness of what's at stake. Paul knew that any addition to the gospel is in fact a distortion to the gospel. Jesus plus anything is, a, is losing of the message of Jesus. The gospel is the message of grace, God's free and unmerited favor towards sinners in Christ. God sent His only Son to be the substitute, our substitute, by dying on the cross in place of sinners. We did not earn this gift. Salvation is a gift that can only be received by faith. We are saved by grace through faith, as Paul says, not by any works of the law. 
So by definition, you can't earn grace. Grace plus anything cancels grace. So Paul speaks with the harshest words here for this group because they are adding to the gospel, in their instance, circumcision and the keeping of the law, which in turn loses the gospel, cancels the gospel, is Paul's point. Paul goes on in verse 3 to list three, he says, kind of distinguishing marks of a Christian. He says, true Christians worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And in verses 4 through 6, Paul, we might say, he's going to double-click on this idea of confidence in the flesh, which the Judaizers were making much of. Paul's going to somewhat tease it out to make a very bold point. The Judaizers were boasting in their Jewishness as a means of earning a righteousness before God. Their status before God was dependent upon their religious keeping. And for argument's sake, Paul teases this line of thinking out to demonstrate just how ridiculous this line of thinking is. Paul says, if you want to talk in terms of earning one's place before God, I'm your man. Let's do it. You see, Paul met every ethnic qualification. Paul passed every religious test. If anyone was able to have confidence in the flesh, confidence that they could stand before God in themselves, it was the Apostle Paul. So for argument's sake, in verses 4 to 6, Paul is going to provide them an impeccable resume for them to consider. Turn your eyes to verse 4. It says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has, con- has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says he has the right status. He has the right ethnicity. Paul has the correct ancestry. Paul has the absolutely right culture. Paul had unmatched religious zeal. In terms of religion, Paul stood alone. He was at the top. He was a Pharisee with the utmost zeal for God's people and blameless in terms of religious activity. And yet Paul's point is clear. Confidence in the flesh is ridiculous. This week I met a man at the gas station right across the street, actually, on Thursday, who I struck up a conversation with. It's Easter. He had a cross on the back of his car. It's a pretty easy conversation. I asked him what the cross meant to him. He said it meant everything to him. He went on to explain that he himself was a Christian. When I asked him what it meant to be a Christian, he said he tries to live a good life. He tries to treat people fairly. He prays to God and he attends church as his work schedule will allow. So I asked him if he believed he would spend eternity with God. He responded, only God knows that. It's up to him. I somewhat agreed with that, but I asked for some clarification. He went on then to explain all the good things he does. He gave me a whole list of things he had never done and adamant that he would never do. He then concluded, hopefully, in the end, 
God will look at my life and determine I can enter heaven. So then I asked him, man, I thought you said God determines who gets into heaven. He said, that's right. So, but you just described to me your actions as being the determining factor of you entering heaven. So I said, are you basing your hope on God or in fact on yourself? He said, well, I never thought of it like that. So I went on to share the gospel with him and he went on his way. But that man's response is the most common misconception of Christianity out there in the world today. It's what we might call a works-based righteousness. It's believing our good works, our religious activity, our living a moral life is what makes us fit, is what makes us righteous before God and therefore worthy to be a Christian and receive eternal life. It's the same confusion the apostle was dealing with in the first century. And his point is to demonstrate the utter ridiculousness of that line of thinking. In terms of religion and trying to earn one's place before God, Paul had everyone beat. Or in his words, he had great gain. He was at the top of the list. And yet all this so-called gain, Paul learned it to be actually a loss when he met Jesus. Look at verse 8 again. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul says everything he stood, he, under everything he understood prior to be in the credit column, all of his privileges and accomplishes have been now transferred over to the debt column. He calls them loss now. Only Christ as a Christian stands in the credit column. All he thought to be gain, his righteous status, his activity, his culture, his zeal, he now sees as rubbish, he says. In fact, he says he counts everything now as rubbish. Why? Because of the surpassing worth, the supreme value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There it is. There's the center of Paul's argument. Knowing Christ is of such value, Paul now looks upon everything else as rubbish or garbage, even dung, this word could be translated. The Apostle Paul speaks here with vulgarity to depict the incomparable value of knowing Jesus as Lord. This is the essence of Christianity. Paul's usage here of know or knowing Christ is not just understanding facts and information about Jesus. The word has a familial usage behind it. As a parent knows a child or the way, in fact, a husband knows his wife. Personal experience and intimacy marks this knowing. You see, it's possible to know who Jesus is, but not actually know Jesus, as Paul speaks here. It's possible to accurately explain Jesus and yet still not personally know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? That's the question. As a kid, I loved the Atlanta Braves. I guess I still do now. And on one of opening day, I was given the uh, 
the privilege of having a pass to arrive early to meet the Braves players and get pictures taken with them. Looking at those pictures afterward, you could have been led to believe I knew the Braves personally. I knew a lot about them. I had pictures of them, actually. But I didn't know them. In fact, multiple barriers, which you couldn't see by the picture, were in place that were intended to hinder my access to them. All the players on the other side of the picture, at least, they were standing behind a short barrier in between myself and them. Couldn't see this in the photo. But the players would simply lean over the barrier to snap a photo with every person in line. There were also security guards with guns on their waist watching everything very closely. There were multiple staff members hurrying you into the line and out of the line to get the picture quickly. But by the picture, you might have been led to believe, as some of my elementary friends were, that I knew the Braves personally. But I did not. Beloved, there is a difference between being close to someone with a barrier and actually knowing a person. Christianity is about knowing Christ personally. Not just a knowledge about Him, knowing Him. No barriers between you and God through Christ. Being a Christian is to know Christ on a personal, intimate, and relational level. Notice Paul doesn't say, I consider everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing about Jesus. No one is a Christian because they know about Jesus or about what he has done. The Apostle John tells us that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ you have sent. Christianity is defined by a saving, experiential knowledge of Jesus found in the act of salvation. And Paul calls this again at the end of verse 8, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And this gain is of surpassing worth. So, what do we actually gain by salvation in Jesus Christ? Through knowing Christ personally, what does this saving knowledge of Jesus entail? Three things this Easter morning I want you to hear and go away with. The first is this, that in knowing Christ, we gain a, a secured righteousness. In verse 8, Paul speaks of a righteousness from God received by faith. Look at it with me. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He repeats it here, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Until Paul found the grace of God in Christ, He lived a life trying to derive a righteousness or a right standing from God by his works, by his keeping of the law. And in this, though, Paul was right about something. He was right about the fact that God is holy. He was right about the fact that he was a sinner. 
there exists a real barrier between us and God. And that barrier carries with it eternal consequences. We are sinners. And because of this, Paul, just like you and I, needed righteousness to stand before a holy God. He was right about that. But Paul was absolutely wrong regarding the source of righteousness. Like the man I met at the gas station, Paul was eternally wrong about where his source of righteousness was going to come from. As a Pharisee, Paul spent every waking hour trying to earn something he could never achieve. Righteousness by the law. Yes, Paul upheld a form of external morality. A righteousness of religion, a righteousness of ceremony, and a righteousness of good works. But this was nothing more than self-righteousness. It it was produced by him in his flesh, as he even confesses here. Self-righteousness is a dangerous and deceptive thing. Because self-righteousness, it does meet man's standard. In and of ourselves, we can do better morally speaking, in regards to man's standard. But man's standard falls infinitely short of God's standard, which is the real issue. Beloved, you need a righteousness to stand before God. You need a righteousness to stand before a holy and righteous God. You need a perfect righteousness, which you do not have in yourself, and you cannot achieve in and of yourself. We need a new source of righteousness outside of ourselves. And this is why the gospel is such good news. The righteousness you and I need to stand before God, we cannot achieve it. But as Paul says here twice, we can receive it. And we receive it by faith. This righteousness is from God, as the end of verse 9 says. It's an alien righteousness, we might say. It's outside of us. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is God's righteousness found in His Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect righteous Son of God, which we must receive by faith. And this is of such importance, Paul repeats it here twice. What is faith? One author, I think, is helpful, defines it this way. Faith is our confident, continuous Confession of total dependence and trust in Jesus Christ to provide all that is necessary for salvation. Saving faith is our confident, continuous confession of total dependence and trust in Jesus Christ to provide all that is necessary for salvation. That's what faith is. Saving faith is not in ourselves, is not in our achievements. It's not in our accomplishments, as religious as they may be. It's not in our self-righteousness. No, faith is a turning from ourselves to a total dependence and trust in Jesus that He possesses all that is needed for our salvation. So how are you going to be accepted before God? Are we accepted by God when we, we, we are accepted by God only when we receive by faith the righteousness God provides through Jesus Christ? Who paid the penalty for our sins. When you receive Christ by faith, God credits, He attributes His righteousness to our account. 
you are declared righteous by your faith in Jesus. And Paul says here, that is eternal gain. It is the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. But receiving the righteousness of God by faith is not an addition to your righteousness. No, it's found, it's received by faith only at the end of yourself. We find an illustration of this truth from the scene of Jesus' life. On this week leading up to this Sunday, on Good Friday, he's hanging on the cross between two criminals. The gospel writer Luke tells us the first criminal, he desires rescue as well, but not from a place of humility, from a place of really self-righteousness, as if he's owed something from God. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He understands himself to be owed something by God or by a Savior. But the second criminal, the one who receives the words of salvation and enters paradise, he has a different confession. In verse 44, he rebukes the first criminal, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, he says, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he responds, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This second man comes to the end of himself. He comes to a place of honest self-assessment and brokenness before Jesus. He understands what he is owed is judgment, is condemnation for his sin. And he knows that no effort, no merit in himself is going to do him any good in this moment as he awaits his death. And from the end of himself, from a place of honest brokenness, he exercises faith. He calls upon Jesus the name the angel gave to Mary. God saves. And he cries out, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which he hears the most precious words echoed from the mouth of our dying and bleeding Savior. Today you will be with me in paradise. The perfect, righteous Son of God. The only one born in the universe, unworthy to receive condemnation, was in that moment receiving what that man and everyone else who places faith in Jesus should receive, is due, condemnation. And by so doing, he made available the righteousness that we need to stand before God. Beloved, you need a righteousness to stand before God and you don't have it. But by faith, you can receive it. But saving faith, knowing Christ, demands you coming to the end of yourself. Like the Apostle Paul, becoming a Christian requires you taking an honest look at yourself in the mirror and concluding everything you believe that makes you fit to stand before God is rubbish. It's dung. And you have to be willing to see it as a loss in order to gain 
the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and receiving his secured righteousness. Have you done that? Have you done that? And Christian, those who have done that, this truth, gaining the righteousness of Christ by faith, is the only means by which we as believers can truly dismantle the fear of man which so grips our hearts. Let's be honest. Every one of us are far too dependent upon the opinions of other people. We feel as though we need people's acceptance. We feel as though we need people's approval. When we don't get that approval, we're crushed. Why? Because we have not allowed this truth of the righteousness of Christ to sink deep enough into our souls. When we truly believe and embrace the truth that the one who knows you fully. Think about that. The one who knows all your junk. The stuff you do really good at. Hiding from other people. He knows all that. And yet he still accepts you in his son. We're free when we can come to that place. And that's exactly what Paul means when he speaks of being found in him. In verse 9. So in knowing Christ, we first gain a secured righteousness. But in knowing Christ, we also gain a present power. In verse 10. In verse 10, Paul speaks of gaining a present power. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The Apostle Paul speaks of really an, the ongoing nature of knowing Christ here. He already knows him in terms of salvation, but he, he, he still he, he longs to know him even more through the power of his resurrection. All Paul's former zeal and religious effort to earn his righteousness by law-keeping was meaningless because it lacked any true power. The law is a good and gracious thing. It comes from a good and gracious God. In fact, apart from the law, we would not know we are sinners. The law teaches us, the law instructs us that we are sinners. But the law possesses no power to provide us what it prescribes. There's no power to overcome sin in the law. True, we can dust ourselves off. We can present ourselves as morally superior before man. But before God, we possess no power to overcome sin. Paul is saying the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus is that we gain true spiritual power, power to truly change through the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection demonstrates the matchless power of Jesus over sin and death. Raising himself from the dead, Jesus demonstrated the extent of his power over both the physical and the spiritual realm. Though Satan, the grave, and all its spiritual forces wanted to keep Jesus in the ground, they proved silent spectators before the Son of God as he rose victoriously. You see, Paul had felt the powerlessness of life trying to earn his righteousness from law-keeping. Have you? Have you felt that? 
Paul knew what it felt like. Even as a Christian, in his own power, to not do that which he wanted, but to do the very thing he hated. Paul had the desire, he said, as a believer to do what is right, but not the ability in and of himself to carry it out. The good he wanted to do, he couldn't do. But the evil he didn't want to do, but he exactly found himself doing in his own strength. And his conclusion in Romans 7 was, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, another reality waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's saying, what what hope is there? What power is there to rely upon? Paul cries out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he goes on in chapter 8 to conclude, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is now ours through the Holy Spirit for all who know Christ. Resurrection power is presently within us, brothers and sisters. We have real power to conquer temptation. We have real power to serve Christ. We have real power to overcome trials and suffering. We have real power to change, to get up and do something different. We have real power to witness boldly for the Lord Jesus. To know Christ is to possess real transforming power in this life. But beloved, we must not overlook the next phrase. We may run the risk of misunderstanding this power. It says in verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his, his death. The resurrection power of Jesus comes through death. It comes through suffering. And this phrase, becoming like him in his death, echoes back to chapter 2, verse 7. The great hymn, the center of this letter, which spoke of Jesus who made himself nothing. Being, he, being, he emptied himself to the point of death. For our lives to be marked by the resurrection power of Jesus, we must empty ourselves of ourselves. We must constantly turn from ourselves, from our selfish desires and aims to live for Jesus. It's then we receive his resurrection power. But that's not it. There's more gain here. Thirdly, in knowing Christ, we gain a future glory. Christianity hangs or falls on the resurrection of Christ, what we're here to celebrate this morning. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no hope. To say you are a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament would say is absurd. Without Jesus rising from the dead, we are hopeless, we are pitiful, as the Bible says, because we have no hope of overcoming sin and death. 
But if Jesus rose from the grave, we have a future hope. We have the glorious resurrection we will share in. To know Christ is to, is to gain, or as Paul says, attain the future resurrection from the dead. Turn your eyes to the end of, towards the end of this chapter. In verses 20 and 21, Paul says, kind of concluding here, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to submit, to subject all things to Himself. To know Christ is to await a future glory. It is to await our resurrected bodies, our new home, and the breathtaking reality that we will see Jesus face to face. But let's be honest. Can we be honest on Easter? The beauty, the glory, the great value of the future resurrection that awaits us not always hard it's not always easy to grasp in the midst of life is it just me maybe you wake up every day bouncing around because of the resurrection of jesus and i struggle with that life is hard my struggle with sin is real suffering is serious in this life families break up Tornadoes come and snatch life. Doctors call, give us news we don't want to hear. Discouragement, difficulty, and distress make our hope in our future glory of the resurrection often hard to translate in the middle of life. But beloved, that's because so many false hopes tend to distort our palate as Christians. The Bible tells us that the sufferings and difficulties of this life for the Christian are in fact means of cleansing our palate for future glory, if we allow them to be. For the sufferings of this life, if we allow them dismantle the false hopes that we tend to to run to. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 8, where he says in verse 18, "For For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 23, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Listen to this phrase. I I, I love this phrase. There's so much reality. Paul was a man who understood this life. Don't put the apostle above a, a regular human being who was living the Christian life, struggling like you and me every single day. He said he groans inwardly as he waits eagerly. For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, he says. And then he says, this, he asks this question. For who who hopes 
for what he sees. There's all the false hopes right there. All the things we see. All the things our hearts desire. Financial hopes, achievement status hopes, medical hopes in this life, relational hopes in this life. He says, but who hopes for what, we, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There's a hard word. Patience. We wait for our future glory when all sad things will be made untrue. It's possible, but absolutely incorrect to interpret Paul's language there in 11. By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's possible, but very incorrect to interpret that as a sign of doubt on behalf of the apostle. As if he doesn't really know if he's going to attain it. It's not doubt. It's patience. By any means possible, is Paul saying that his resurrection hope, it will come. It may come by him being slain in prison where he's writing from. It may come and he's still alive at the return of Christ. However it happens, Paul says, I wait for this hope with confident patience. Are you anxious? Are you impatient? It's probably a sign. You, me, we have our hope in the wrong place. Perhaps this Easter Sunday we need a palate cleansing. Perhaps we need to confess the false hopes that often guide our thinking in our action and cling to the true future hope of the resurrection. To know Christ is to await a future glory. It is to await our resurrected bodies, our new home, and the breathtaking reality that we will see Jesus face to face. Let me try to bring this home a bit more. I'm going to use some big words, but... We're big people, so we'll handle this. Salvation in the Bible, it is an umbrella term encompassing every aspect of the Christian life. Our justification, being made right with God. Our sanctification, growing as a Christian in the image of Christ. And our glorification, the final hope of eternity. This is how the Bible can speak of us having been saved, being saved, and will be saved. It's not contradicting itself. It's talking about different aspects of our salvation. Paul's point in this section is that the securing of all three aspects are included in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. In knowing Jesus, we gain a righteousness to stand before God. In our justification, we have been saved. In knowing Jesus, we gain a, a present power as we live the Christian life, becoming more like Jesus. Sanctification, we're being saved. And by knowing Jesus, 
We possess a future hope through the resurrection of Jesus glorification. We will be saved. Christian. The substance of your Christian life right now. Is determined. By you embracing. Believing. Cherishing. What God has done for you. And what God will do for you. Living a a faithful Christian life in our sanctification now requires us believing and resting in the assurance of our justification while longing and waiting patiently for our glorification. And we do so knowing that every aspect of our salvation is as surely completed as the fact that Jesus got up from the grave. closing, I want to come back to answer that question we began with directly. What is Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? Christianity is about a great exchange. It's about losing something in order to gain something. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? What shall a man give in exchange for his life? Christianity is about losing your life to gain his life. There is an exchange in salvation. There is an exchange of all that I am for all that Christ is. There's an exchange of all my achievements, my efforts, my religious attempts to gain the person of Jesus, to know him. The wise person looks at everything in life, measures it against the value of gaining Jesus Christ and says, I will exchange it all for him. The fool sees it and says, I'll hold on to what I have. I'll take my chances and stand before God in my own righteousness. Knowing him is of surpassing worth. Do you know him this Easter morning? I didn't ask you, do you know about him? I didn't ask you, have you done things in life religiously? Do you have a personal saving relationship with Jesus? Have you looked upon Jesus, seen his surpassing worth? Turn from yourself in repentance and place faith in Him. Have you received His righteousness? Do you have His power? Are you waiting patiently for the future hope? Do you know Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not ambiguous. It's not unclear. By the Holy Spirit, you've spoken definite, defining words of what it means to be a follower of you. God, I pray for us this 
Easter. For those of us who do know Christ, are walking in the Spirit, Lord, I, I do pray that you would show us, convict us of where we tend to put our hope in the wrong things. God, reveal those to us. We don't want to lose our taste buds for taste buds for glory. Cleanse our palate this morning. Give us fresh taste for the glory of your Son. That allow us to walk in the midst of this life, which is so often hard. And do it with a confident patience, knowing what you have done for us, what you will do for us, and allow that to give us confidence in what you are doing for us right now. God, in a room this size, there is some, there are some in this room who walked in probably thinking that Christianity was marked by what we do or don't do. God, I pray today you would give them boldness, you would give them wisdom, that they would turn from themselves, bring them to the end of themselves, as we see the man on the cross, that they would cry out to you, repenting of their sins, confessing what you already know to be true, that they are sinners, but that they don't have in and of themselves the power that they need to save themselves. And that they would follow this man's very words, Jesus, remember me, save me. You are the king of glory. By placing faith in you, help me to enter your kingdom as well. God, we're so grateful this morning that though there are often things in our lives we don't have all the answers to, the most significant, the most important, we do know. The grave is empty. The throne is secure. Leave us with the posture of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. After that wonderful chapter of the resurrection, he says, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in Him nothing we do will be in vain. We thank you, Lord. Let us sing now the deep confession of our souls, the truth of the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.